0: Coming up on today's show, the Premier, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, and the Head of AHS go on a myth busting mission. Some frustrating news from the Canadians for Tax Fairness organization. 50 Canadian companies made record profits in 2020. Many of them dodged taxes and received federal government bailout programs. And what's going on with our educators? All right. So the press conference yesterday, let's just walk through some of the myth busting that they were attempting to do yesterday and some of the discussions they had. They started with the fact that this is not strictly a problem being seen in the big cities.
1: Throughout the pandemic, people living in rural areas of the province have been more likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 than people living in large urban areas. Since February of this year, hospitalization rates are 26% higher and ICU rates are 30% higher in rural areas than in urban ones. Some of these areas are reporting rates higher than Calgary and in some cases rates that are two times higher than Edmonton. The point here isn't no one's to blame for COVID and no region is the point is simply this is this is not an urban versus rural issue. It's clear that COVID-19 is everywhere in the province and People's lives matter just as much no matter where they live, where they come from.
0: Okay, so that was the situation that the Premier was trying to make clear. Okay, we keep hearing that rural areas say they're being unfairly treated because they don't have the cases that the cities have. The Premier's saying, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. There are some cases that are seeing just as many problems when it comes to... um, COVID cases and uh, in rural areas, and some of those rural cases end up in the city uh, on the ICUs that we keep talking about. ICUs was another one that they talked about, and um, the Premier again saying, hey, right now it's at a crisis level.
1: 186 of them are in intensive care. These 186 Albertans are critically ill with COVID-19, and that's a record high uh, for the pandemic in Alberta. Many of these are people who are sedated because they're on respirators, unable to breathe on their own, and who cannot have any human contact except through
0: layers of PPE. Um, he also had with him Alberta Health Services CEO Dr. Verney Yu saying the health care system is more stressed right now than it ever has been.
2: Over the past month, the number of people with COVID needing ICU care has increased by more than 100%. Overall ICU capacity across Alberta would be above 140% if we had not opened an additional 106 beds on top of our pre-pandemic ICU capacity at about 170 beds across the zones. And she says, yes, we do have that capacity. And as we know, there are other arrangements being made. Pandemic response units, such as the Butterdome site in Edmonton, have been created to support additional inpatient capacity if required. As well as the Butterdome site and the sprung structure at the Peter Lougheed Hospital in Calgary, we are constructing pandemic response units in sheltered space at the K Edmonton Clinic in Edmonton and at the South Health Campus in Calgary. These care spaces are going to be kept in reserve as part of our responsible contingency planning. And they are currently not needed.
0: And then she went on to say the fact of the matter is we have the beds, we have the space, we don't have the staff. That's the issue. And as we're having this discussion, I get this text saying, "Shay, glad to hear that you all believe the people that have probably never set foot in a hospital during the pandemic to get a true snapshot of what's really going on and not the nurses and the doctors who are saying different. Are those nurses and doctors lying? Are they conspiracy theorists? What do they have to gain from not being honest about things not being that bad? So that was the point I was making. Um, You can present all the evidence in the world to some people and it, it, it won't change hearts and minds. It won't. It just won't. I mean, the evidence has been available for over a year, right? You've all heard from the doctors working in the ERs and the ICUs saying, this is what's going on. You've got the CEO of Alberta Health Services coming out saying, this is what going, is going on. We're building field hospitals at the Butterdome and down at the South Calgary um, Health Centre. This is happening. No, it's not. No, it's not. The ICUs aren't full. 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Let's go to Wayne. Hi, Wayne. How are you? Hi, Jay.
3: I'm I'm good. Uh, The other question I think a lot of people will have to ask is, why does Alberta Health Service have a a large budget where two-thirds of it goes to administration and one-third goes to operating hospitals? I mean, in the private sector, you would have a quarter of your operating budget going to administration and the other three-quarter going to production or to where the work is, right? Right, okay. And. And you look at and it keeps getting worse every year. You look at Dina Henshaw, she makes $340,000 a year as a doctor, and as a chief medical doctor. And then you start looking at the CEOs or the vice presidents and presidents of the uh, AHS, and what they make is astronomical. And then, of course, everybody's building their own little empires. I think it's time for a uh, restructure or to go through AHS top level and with a with a knife and make cuts. Well,
0: Wayne, I mean, how long have we talked about that, right? How long have we talked about taking a closer look at where we spend money when it comes to health care? Because we spend a tremendous amount of money. We spend more than any other province. Um, do oh, yeah. we get the outcomes for it? I mean, this has been a discussion that's been going on for years and years and years and years, but it's never been advanced.
3: And I think it's a, an issue with the politicians because they don't want to uh, step on a lot of toes. Mind you, you know, and then, of course, the uh, nurses are upset with the loss of jobs, which is fair. I mean, I would be, too, if I was working as a nurse. And The fact is, is that the, the amount of administration that goes on inside AHS is so redundant that you could get by with a third, maybe half as much as what they have now.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how that would break down. I appreciate the call, Wayne. I don't know uh, exactly how the numbers shake down in terms of Alberta Health Services. I haven't looked at their budget. But, uh, you know, he makes a point in terms of that's been something that's been talked about for a really long time around here, right? We, we've we've talked about the fact that the administrative costs and, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about the health care system, if you're talking about post-secondary education, if you're talking about uh, the teachers. Ser- it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. When you start talking about any of these big crown corporations, one of the first things that they look at is, well, we can do it cheaper we can do it we can do it cheaper but we never do um so that's a fair discussion and when you're looking at the fact that you're in the healthcare system provide health care are we getting the outcome for the money that we spend when you take a look at how much we spend versus other jurisdictions in the country we do pay more than everybody else is it worth it is what we get worth the money that we spend Talking a bit about government spending. Earlier we talked about how we're financing it all uh, with the modern monetary theory, according to a new report from the Fraser Institute, and how that could mean big trouble for us down the road. Now we're going to talk about where some of that money went, and uh, I think some of you are going to be a little angry with what we're about to find out. Uh, It's a report by Canadians for Tax Fairness, taking a look into some of the economic realities in our country, and the headline is... Fifty of Canada's largest companies made record profits in 2020. Many of those companies benefited from lower tax rates, tax havens, and the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy Program. So, let's talk to the man behind this report. His name's D.T. Cochran. Uh, D.T., thanks for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So, uh, yeah, that's an eye-opening headline. Fifty of Canada's largest companies made record profits, paid lower taxes... Use tax havens and got government subsidies. Let's let's break this down a little bit. What are we What are we talking about here? Let's deal with tax rates first of all. How many of them managed to actually pay less taxes despite reporting uh, record profits?
4: Well, most of the companies that we looked at pay a tax rate below the combined statutory rate, uh, federal and provincial rates that that would be expected of them uh, across the country that averages about 26% the vast majority of the, of the companies pay an effective tax rate below 26% and they achieve that in all kinds of of different ways um some of which are more and some of which are less legitimate um including the use of of tax havens which is a long standing problem that thankfully we're seeing in the US yep. some move to address it And hopefully the Canadian government will follow suit.
0: Um, Yeah, just reading in the report here, 34 34 of the 50 had at least one identified subsidiary in a tax haven. So basically they're just parking money offshore kind of a thing and avoiding the tax on it, right?
4: Yeah, there's there's ways to shift where you're reporting your profit through where you park different assets. So even though the, the revenues are generated in one country, You're reporting the revenues as being uh, attained by the assets that's in this other country that has a very beneficial tax rate. Uh, There's no economic benefit to uh, any of us, but it helps the the, the bottom lines of these big
0: corporations and ultimately their shareholders. Is that their primary method of avoiding taxes, or are there other things that they're doing in Canada to bring down their tax rates as well? Well,
4: the main thing they have succeeded in doing in bringing down their tax rates is successfully lobbying to lower the statutory rate. We saw the federal government uh, several years ago cut the statutory rate to 15%. We were told that this would help drive increased investment, um, and that has not come to fruition. So one of the main things that we have been calling for for uh, years and years is to increase that that statutory rate because the, the corporations are not investing in productive capacity uh, and instead are just uh, increasing their own cash holdings and increasing the dividends that they send to their owners.
0: Now, the one that I think is really upsetting to a lot of people is the fact that, uh, and and we should point out, it's it's not quite as many as the 37 and 34. It's about seven of the companies that you looked into, the 50 that you looked into that reported record profits that still accessed government emergency programs. Clearly, um, they probably didn't need them, at least to the extent. Um, How many of these companies cashed in on the program, and um, what kind of... You know, impacted that have on their bottom line? Do you think?
4: So we identified at least seven of the the companies. Uh, it's possible others um, accessed it through other subsidiaries that don't bear the same name. Um, so this gets pretty complicated because they have many many subsidiaries. Um, but we clearly identified seven of them. Uh, the big one on the list was Kuschtar, which was uh, number three in terms of its its record profits, uh, and they access queues. Um, We have an oil company. We have the forestry company, Canfor, uh, and also Interfor. Um, We have a a gold mining company. And so at some point, they were able to meet the qualifications for queues, yet over the course of the year managed to make record profits. So we think at the very least, uh, absolutely all of the money that they received Uh, should be returned to the government. They definitely did not need it. Um, And again, sending that money to them didn't benefit Canadians. It was just a big part of this expenditure, which is supposed to help workers that really, it appears to have mostly helped their shareholders.
0: Yeah, these are companies that are accessing a program that was meant to sort of keep businesses afloat, keep people paid so they didn't end up in the unemployment ranks. Um, But The money was actually put into the bottom line and in many cases handed back out to shareholders through dividends, right?
4: Yes, absolutely. And we didn't even uh, include companies where franchisees um, uh, took the cues. So, for example, Leon's, the company itself, we we don't see that it took cues, but many of its franchisees did. And Leon definitely would have expected the franchisees to continue to pay them. So they were able to make these record
0: profits um, while not supporting their franchisees, who then had to turn to the federal government. Is there any sort of breakdown on this in terms of, you know, uh, geographically or industry-based? Is there one sector that seemed to take advantage of this more than another? Or is this right across the country from coast to coast?
4: Uh, It is. It is right across the country from coast to coast it's, it's uh heavily ontario based but that's just to be expected because most of the sure. uh, of the corporations are are based here um but we do see it in uh we, we have record record centers in almost every province um industry-wise uh mining was a, a big a big sector for the record profits. um we I, I mentioned two of the forestry companies that were that were big winners Um, We have some retail outlets that were that were big winners and quite a few financial intermediary uh, type companies that were that were big, big uh, profit record setters.
0: Now, your report states that these 50 record setters uh, saw the profits go up by more than 50 percent. Cash holdings increased for 39 of them by a combined $26.4 billion. So we're not talking about small amounts of money. When you're talking about tax evasion and receiving government subsidies on, you know, with profits of $26.4 billion, that's a big hit to us, your average Canadian taxpayer.
4: This, this is all money that the corporations work very hard to keep under their control, uh, so they can make the decisions about what is done with it. And again, we were told for a long time that, well, what they will choose to do with it is invest it in productive capacity. But for all types of different reasons, that's not happening. And so instead, they're sitting on it, uh, the so-called dead money that was called out you know, almost a decade ago mm-hmm. by, by David Dodge, uh, or they're sending it to their shareholders which is contributing to the worsening uh, wealth inequality in this country.
0: Yeah, uh, a scary situation. You also mentioned, uh, some people are asking about the oil company, you mentioned TC Energy. That was one of the record setters. When you say record setter, what do you mean?
4: Uh, so they, they, they had higher profits in 2020 than in any year that we look back, going back to 1980. So I feel fairly safe in saying over their entire existence the $4.6 billion in profits that they had are an all-time record for them. So really, we we wanted to do this research because so many people are struggling and suffering and the government had to step in in an unprecedented way to support them. And then on the other hand, we see these massive corporations that were beneficiaries of of our current situation. So while our economy has been been impacted in some substantial ways, the corporations that are part of that economy managed to manage to be big financial winners, which
0: yeah. is, is, a, is a problem. Yeah, indeed it is. For sure it is. A really interesting report. Thanks so much for your time, DT. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, that's DT Cochran, who is uh, the author of the report. He's a policy researcher for Canadians for Tax Fairness, who put out this report. Well, I can't imagine being a teacher at the best of times. That that, that work is not for me. I uh, simply don't have the patience for it. I'd probably end up in prison. Um, that's during a regular time. Uh, so what we've had teachers doing during this pandemic really is remarkable. You're in class, you're out of class, you're teaching at the Blackboard, if they still use those, you're teaching on Zoom. It's crazy. It's been hard. Teachers in Alberta report being physically and emotionally exhausted from it all. Not surprising. Astrid Kendrick joins us now. She's an adjunct professor at the University of Calgary, who's been doing some work into exactly what's going on among educators. Um, Astrid, obviously, the first stress factor that any of us can see is uh, just all the upheaval and all the change, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, Completely new territory, too, right? They've been dealing with a tremendous amount over the past year.
5: Yeah, you know, it's been a really tough year for teachers and, in fact, all educational workers. So it's been hard on principals, Mm -hmm. on bus drivers, on educational assistants, on system leaders. Uh, All of them have been really trying to do their best for kids over the last 14 months.
0: Now, when you were taking a look at this, you talk about something called compassionate exhaustion. Explain what that term means for us.
5: Yeah, so um, starting in 2020, early in the year, actually before the pandemic, I was approached to look into burnout and compassion fatigue in educational workers in Alberta. And so compassion fatigue is actually something we normally associate with firefighters, with cops, with people who are kind of in the front lines doing crisis work and not so much with educators. And so um, my funders, the Alberta Teachers Association and the Alberta School Employees Benefit Plan, wanted to know if this was something happening to teachers, if this was something that uh, educators faced. And so what it is, is it's kind of it's the impact of caring on uh, the person providing the care. So if you think about somebody going into, um, for example, people in Fort McMurray, right, they've had fires, sure. they've had floods, everything. So uh, educators have kind of been teaching through all that stuff, and there's been an impact on them. Uh, emotionally and working with kids who are also going through those things at the same time. And so what I've been looking at is how is this impacting uh, both individuals and and professions.
0: How how do you measure compassionate exhaustion? What's uh, sort of how can you get a handle on on how people are feeling in that area?
5: Well, luckily, uh, other professions have been looking at it. So there's actually a uh, measure called the ProQual, the Professional Quality of Life Survey. Um, and what we did is we actually embedded that measure into a survey that we sent out um, twice now. And um, basically, we tip that apart and people answer a series of questions and they get a score. And based on that score, the, the measure tells them, are you in compassion fatigue or are you in compassion satisfaction?
0: Interesting. Okay, now... Um, when you're hearing from teachers, what are they reporting in terms of how this has affected their compassionate exhaustion levels? What are they saying?
5: Well, essentially what they're saying is that, uh, you know, they're really struggling and not so much that kids will see it. So parents and and, uh, and hopefully students aren't looking at their teachers and saying, wow, what's going on with my teacher? Uh, the teachers themselves are kind of hiding their stress. They're hiding their um, their their problems, and they're presenting a face that's you know calm and compassionate, and easygoing and happy and cheerful. When in fact deep down they're feeling, um, you know that that their work isn't as good as it could be. And so essentially, what's happening, and this is kind of what came up in the survey and interviews, is they're kind of you know before they go into a school, they're sitting in the car and they're having a good cry, or they have to go out at lunchtime and you know and they're just feeling overwhelmed and sad and then they go back into school and they try to be that um, positive force again so it's kind of that hidden side that we're not necessarily seeing but is really devastating to an individual
0: okay now i'm trying to understand it is it just because of what they're dealing with or being that it's a part of their their compassionate their compassion levels is it because of what they're seeing in their students as well and sort of taking on that load too
5: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's happening. So the thing about students, children, and youth is they don't leave their trauma at home, right? So if something's going on, maybe a parent lost their job or they're grieving the loss of a pet, you know, kids respond to all kinds of things differently. They take that with them to school. And so when they get there, um, they want the person that greeting them, you know, they'll often tell them what's going on. And so what happens is the caregiver, in this case, you know, a teacher or an EA or the principal, Mm -hmm. they hear all these things that are happening with the kids. And so they try to help them, find them the support, the resources they need. But then there isn't really time within the school day for that caregiver to sit back and go, okay, wow, boy, that kid's going through something really tough. How do I feel about that? And how do, you know, who do I talk to so I don't carry their weight and so um, it's kind of keeping an eye on that caregiver yeah. to make sure that they can keep caring, right? And so that's kind of that's the uh, that's the problem with compassion fatigue. Oh yeah. Is that you know eventually they can, and, and you don't want them to, but that they ca- can run out of care. That right? capacity is gone. Pre-
0: Precisely, yeah. And you know, Astrid, I think obviously the the concern there is. We've all had those teachers who care. And, and those are the best teachers. Those are the ones that we remember years later. They can change a kid's life. Um, it's so important to have those teachers in a child's life. So I guess the risk is we'll see less of that caring and that compassion and, and or some some of those teachers who have that and are being really you know substantially hit by this leaving. Is that some of the risk here? It's going to change the school environment in some way? Yeah, so
5: that's the risk. And I think that... Um most teachers are really going to try, and this is what came out in the study, is that they are trying their best not for that to happen. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be Professor Snake, right? They don't want to be the teacher from Ferris Bueller, who is so completely right. apathetic, right, the Bueller. And so they're going to work themselves to physical exhaustion before they turn into that person. But ultimately, that's going to lead to um what's known as being vertically ill and that is you know they just they can't they can't do it anymore so they have to go on a stress leave or you know they might leave the professional together and so we really don't want that outcome right you know as a researcher I want and as a parent I want my son to be cared for by the people that I send him to each day and so there's really somewhat of an urgency to, to figure out a way to help the educators so that particularly when things get hopefully back to more normal in September, they're ready, right? And they're, right, yeah. and they're excited and they're going to help students get past the last 14 months because there's been, of course, some learning that hasn't happened. So we need our educators to be like ready to go. You know, we are going to figure out what these learning gaps are and we are going to help our kids you know, move into the next stage of their learning. And so part of my next part of my research is really figuring out, you know, how can we help them so that, you know, these, these occupational hazards um, can be dealt with.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's important. It's really important. It'll have a big impact uh, on the future of this province. Thank you so much for your uh, time this morning, Astrid. I appreciate it.
5: Yeah. Thanks for listening to me, Shay, and giving me this chance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Great work. Thank you, Astrid. Um, you know, just taking a look at some of the texts, you know, it's the state of life, right? Uh, everybody's dealing with extra some way, shape or form. That's from Dave Z. You're absolutely right, Dave, for sure. No doubt about it. Um, it we all are. It, it, everything's changed for everybody. So um, I guess the point is it's it's a it's a thoughtful exercise to take a look at the way that it has changed and you know i mean it's information that we can use to make sure that we're doing what needs to be done so that we mitigate the disaster uh, the damage that could be done because yeah we've all been through hell for over a year no question about it so what do you just throw your hands up in the air and say who cares no you can take a look at what's going on what impact it's having and and learn from it so uh that's what educators are doing and valuable exercise